Good morning, everyone. Welcome to the South Canaan Valley Church of Christ podcast. Please enjoy the following study. In 1973, some movie producers hired a young director named Steven Spielberg to make a movie based on a novel about shark attacks. It's called Jaws. The movie at the time was so scary that millions of Americans, even to this day, panic when there's wind of a shark in the water on the beach where they are. And it keeps a lot of people actually away from beaches. But there was an article in a magazine several years ago, about 10 years ago or so, that claims that on average, less than one American is killed by sharks every year. Doesn't count all the attacks, but less than one person is killed every year. So just in case you need something different to worry about, here's a list of the things that are more likely than a shark to kill you. So 0.92 attacks per year, 0.92 shark attacks leading to death. Trampolines kill 1.1 people per year. Now we're not talking about compound fractures, April and Larry. That that kid that was in in their backyard that they had when they had a trampoline that wound up with a compound fracture. Injuries are different, but deaths, 1.1 per year. Roller coasters kill 1.15 people per year. Vending machines. You know, when the the thing gets stuck, you know, the Twinkies get stuck, and people start rocking that thing, comes over on them, kills two people a year. Fireworks. Now, you know, some of us are familiar with Four Fingers fireworks, right? But what typically happens, the article said, is that people will put their, the fireworks down into the PVC tube, and it doesn't go off immediately, so they look over in it, and that's when death occurs. Skydiving. How in the world you can even get insurance to have a skydiving company, I'll I'll, I'll never understand. But it kills 21 people a year. Crushed by a television or furniture, Dustin Clanch. He and my wife had a little incident one time with this gigantic CRT, you know, the old old style tube TVs. They were moving at at our house and it came tumbling out of the cabinet onto my wife. They'd been married, I don't know if they were even married yet, but they hadn't been, I don't think they were even married yet, so that almost ended that. <laughs> so the article in this it's magazine concludes that with kind of this challenge to face our fears and take action. And the article reminds us that the risk factors of smoking, poor diet, Lack of physical exercise, drug abuse, alcoholism kills far more people prematurely. Hundreds of thousands of people in the U.S. die from those factors alone. Heart disease being number one. 
the article urges us to get off the couch, turn off Jaws, and go for a swim. Get some exercise. That's good advice, but how do you do that? How do you face your fears and take action? How do you overcome the anxiety, especially when you're faced really with more legitimate threats than shark attack or dying as a result of jumping on a trampoline? How do you address the threats, real or perceived, from, of a different kind? Some in this room, some watching online or will listen to this later, may have legitimate fears that one or the other leading presidential contenders is going to win or lose. You see that as an existential threat to democracy, your way of living, to name it. There's going to be some pretty major tax law changes that happen in January of 2026. I don't know if you knew that or not. Unless Congress does something, your taxes are likely to go up. They don't have to do anything. They just have to sit on their hands, and your taxes are likely to go up. Not dramatically, but they will likely go up. What about economic changes? Got awfully quiet when I said that, interestingly. Economic changes like job loss, like um, even higher interest rates, perhaps. Um, there's a variety of things that can, that can happen. Climate change. There's a lot of people that are very fearful of what climate change will mean. And, and it doesn't necessarily mean rising seawaters. That's an arguable thing. It doesn't necessarily mean rising temperatures. That's, again, arguable. But what's inarguable is that the center of Tornado Alley has shifted. It shifted east and a little bit north. Arkansas, Kentucky, Tennessee, Illinois, Indiana, that neck of the woods is far more threatened now than they were, say, 20 years ago. And it's changing things. How do you face those and perhaps lots of other fears that I haven't enumerated here, how do you face those as a follower of Christ? Well, if you've got your Bibles or you want to follow along on, on the screen, look at John chapter 20. Thanks for the reading, Dustin. John chapter 20. Jesus here is addressing his disciples. Now let's get the picture of what's going on. They are in a locked room. The, the, the door is closed and, the, and, and it is locked. And they were cowering in fear that the authorities, um, specifically Jewish authorities from, from, the, uh, from the high priest, but maybe even the Romans, because the Romans, after all, were the ones that executed Jesus, technically, they might come and get the disciples. What had happened you know, a couple of days before? So a couple of Jesus' followers earlier in the day discovered that his tomb was empty. So I think they were in, in fear of that because it's like, oh, man, 
Now the body's missing. They're going to come blame us. This is a mess. And then Mary said that she saw Jesus alive. Oh, great. Now we got an empty tomb. They're likely to come after us. And you are crazy enough to think that, Mary, that, that Jesus is alive and walking around? So they were full of all kinds of doubt and fear and didn't know what to think. Then that same day at evening, being the first day of the week, when the doors were shut, that, that, that word means locked, where the disciples were assembled for fear of the Jews, <coughs> Jesus came and stood in the midst and said to them, Peace be with you. So I, I, I described the, the, the scenario, and there they come. Or there, rather, Jesus comes. So the resurrected Lord Jesus Christ in, in his glorified body, what, whatever that looked like exactly, passes through a locked door. He didn't open the door and come in. He just passed through it and greets them. Now, when he said, peace be with you, shalom in Hebrew, that was a very standard greeting of the day. But in this context, it is full of meaning. Peace be with you. And Jesus will repeat that greeting two more times in this same chapter, verses uh, 21 and then on again in 26, which tells me that it's more than just a simple hello, how are you, shalom. I think he wants his disciples to replace their fear with his peace. Their fear with his peace peace two nights before as chris was talking about they they as he read there in matthew 26 they're sharing this this last meal together we we call it the last supper it was really a a celebration of the passover um jesus told them it back in in verse 27 of uh, chapter 14 he says peace i leave with you my peace i give to you not as the world gives do I give to you? Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Now, I don't know, but I am pretty convinced that the disciples really didn't understand exactly what Jesus was saying. They, he, they, my, my peace I leave with you, and I don't mean peace like the world means peace, which means lack of war. The French is detente. We hear that, you know, that means we're not fighting at the moment. He says, it's different than that. Not as the world gives do I give you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. He draws a distinction between trouble and fear. Okay? Jesus had just won this piece on the cross when we see him in John chapter 20 it's where he defeated the greatest enemy death and Satan and that's where he paid the price to bring them to peace with God that's the peace that it's not as the world brings and now he's alive to announce that peace to the world 
Again, that peace between us and God. You see, I think that's one of the things that we fail to appreciate sometimes. I fail to appreciate, perhaps you do. That although the Bible tells us, I sometimes forget this passage, that my sin created, made me an enemy of God's. There is enmity between him and me. My sin created that, that, that circumstance. My sin separated me from God. And Christ, it, through his death, brought us back together, reconciled us. Peace. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his side. Then the disciples were glad when they saw the Lord. You see, joy has replaced their fear. Because Jesus came and showed them the wounds in his hands and his side. See, it really is me. See what they did to me? See my hands? See my side where they pierced me with a a spear? He was no ghost. He was no imposter. He was the same man the authorities had hung on a cross and he was now standing before them very much alive. So he said to them again, Peace to you. As the Father has sent me, I also send you. He came... Jesus did, and now he's commissioning them to represent him in the world. The Father sent me, I'm sending you. He sends his followers to share this message of forgiveness, to share this message of peace. I would dare say backing up a step to remind people, remind ourselves of the separation between us and God without Jesus. It's not because of what we've done or not done. I think we sometimes want to brag more on what we don't do than what we actually do. But it's because of what Jesus came and accomplished on the cross. Now remember, this is all in the, in the midst of, I mean, it's just perhaps minutes after They were behind a locked door, cowering in fear. What's going to happen next? Who is going to come banging on the door looking for us? Who's going to betray us? He wants his followers to share this message of forgiveness through this new power of the Holy Spirit. And when he, Jesus, had said this, he breathed on them. He said to them, receive the Holy Spirit. If you forgive the sins of any, they are forgiven them. If you retain the sins of any, they are retained. Literally what the Greek means here is, if you forgive the sins of any, they have already been forgiven. His his followers did not have the power to forgive sin. Only Jesus, only God can do that. Only God can forgive sins. But they can announce the forgiveness that God has already given. 
That gift is there. That, that peace is there. But we have to accept it. My concern, my brothers and sisters today, and our friends and, and brothers and sisters who are watching online, my concern today is that we have been given that gift of the Holy Spirit, that gift of forgiveness, that gift of peace with God, but we forget about it. We ignore it. We say, yeah, yeah. We don't, so we don't say this out loud, but we effectively say, yeah, that's okay, but I've got this to deal with. I've got this health issue to deal with. I've got this crisis to deal with. I have this fear in my life. I've got this fear of, name it, flying, riding on a roller coaster, getting in three feet of water because they're sharks, fear of losing my job, fear of my, my health deteriorating, fear of losing my father, my grandfather, my mother, my grandmother. And that fear paralyzes us. It keeps us from moving forward. What if that fear had kept those disciples in that room? What if they'd have stayed there? They said, yeah, Jesus, we see you. Yeah, we know what you, what you accomplished on the, on the cross. We see your hands. We see the, the side. But man, did you see those guys with those clubs and those swords? I don't want any part of that. What if that fear that you have, whatever it is, and look, some of you are facing grave health issues right this minute. Some of you effectively have a death sentence. Oh, actually, we all do. It's called birth, and there's an expiration date at some point. Some of you just know it's a little closer than others. Some of it because of age. Some of it's because of a diagnosis that you have, a condition that you have. But we all have a clock running. It's appointed unto man once to die, and after that, the judgment, the writer of Hebrews tells us. So the first thing that we need to do To overcome our fear is to believe that Jesus is alive. Now you might say, well, yeah, I believe in the resurrection. Yeah, I, I, I get that. But some don't. Or some give it lip service. We basically say, yeah, yeah. And George Washington lived, and Jesus rose from the dead, and Abraham Lincoln uh, signed the Emancipation Proclamation. It's like an historical fact that we just kind of put in a timeline. But you see, when we trust that Jesus rose from the dead after he died on the cross for your sins, my sins, when we rely on that death and resurrection for our own forgiveness that's when we're really starting to grasp our faith. That's when we're really starting to make that faith our own. You recall our brother Timothy Fleming, was, he was back here back in the fall, talked about that, making this faith our own, wearing it ourselves. 
You see, 10 of Jesus' disciples believed when he came to them on that evening uh, that he rose from the dead. But one of them was missing. The other one had hung himself. Now look at this in, in verse 24. Now, this is all in the context of believing that Jesus is alive, okay? Now, Thomas, called the twin, one of the twelve, was not with them when Jesus came. The other disciples therefore said to him, we have seen the Lord. So he said to them, unless I see that his hands, uh, in his hands the print of the nails and put my finger into the print of the nails and put my hand into his side, I will not believe. The disciples said it more than once. The, the verb tense of the word said um, in that third line. Therefore, the other disciples said to him. That wasn't them saying it once. The verb tense there it, it implies continuous action. In the Greek, it's what's called the imperfect tense. In other words, they kept telling him more than once that Thomas, uh, yeah, dude, we've seen the Lord. But he refused to believe him. It wasn't a passing comment. It was said to him multiple times. And after eight days, his disciples were again inside, and Thomas with them. So it was the next week. Jesus came, the doors being shut, and stood in the midst and said, Peace to you. Then he said to Thomas, Reach your finger here, and look at my hands. Jesus knew where his doubts were. Jesus knew what he had said to the others. Reach your finger here. Look at my hands. Reach your hand here. Put it into my side. Do not be unbelieving, but believing. It wasn't enough for Thomas to see Jesus. That could be an illusion. No, Thomas had to touch the wounds caused by the crucifixion. So... Jesus invites him to do just that, to touch his hands and his side. You see, Jesus does not call us to a blind faith. I don't care what the world says, that, that somehow we're believing in some mystical, woozy, uh, fuzzy something. He calls us to a faith based on solid evidence. Now, many world religions ask you to believe without much, if any, evidence. Now, let me be specific. Buddhism depends on the profound insights gained by a guy named Siddhartha Gautama. I'm, I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. He's called the Buddha. During his moment of enlightenment while meditating under a Bodhi tree. Hinduism looks to the Vedas, the... Um, their holy sayings or holy statements passed on to the first man at the dawn of time. Islam says that the angel Gabriel came to the prophet Muhammad at, and, the, uh, and gave him the very words of God. I submit to you those are untestable claims. Untestable. How do you test that? Through any legitimate, recognized method of historical documentation or proof. Here's what Christianity claims. It claims something very different. It's a series of events about Jesus' life, 
his death and his resurrection, which are said to have taken place in public in a verifiable time recorded by a variety of witnesses, it's as if Christianity places its neck on the block and says, take a swing. Imagine that I said to you that my long-deceased great-great-grandfather appeared in Times Square last week. Times Square, New York. During rush hour, his appearance stopped traffic and left the witnesses slack-jawed as he explained the truth of the spiritual realm to them. That's my claim. My great-great-grandfather did that last week in Times Square. Now, this claim you could test to some degree. How would you do that? Well, you could watch news services. You could Google it up and say, did something like this happen? You could read eyewitness accounts. You could check New York traffic reports. There's enough cameras around Times Square, trust me, that you could get feeds from somewhere and see some kind of pictures of what was happening. Now, you might not be able to prove it beyond all doubt, but a fair-minded person would be able to arrive at a reasonable judgment about whether this is true or false. Okay? If you found no evidence at all, you'd be well within your rights, well within your reason, for you to dismiss it and say, it's, that's false. But if you found good evidence, news reports, eyewitness reports, um, forget about video for a moment, but you've, you've got traffic reports, you've got people looking at it from all different angles, some that were supporters of Jesus, some that were not, and you find that there was evidence of Jesus' existence, his life, his death. If you found evidence of my supposed story about my late great-great-grandfather, or if you found more evidence than you would expect if the story was completely false, you could rationally accept it as being true, I would submit. That's what I mean by a testable claim. The central claims of Christianity are, to a degree, testable. You can apply the normal tests of history and find that we do, in fact, possess exactly the sort of evidence you would expect if the core of the Jesus story is true and a whole lot more evidence than you would expect if the story was made up. Thomas tested this claim that Jesus rose from the dead, and he became thoroughly convinced that it was true. Put his hands on the man. For the Christian, faith is based on solid evidence. Now, have we seen physically the evidence? Well, I've been to Jerusalem, and there's, there's stuff there, yeah, <clears throat> modified over time, 2,000 years of wind and rain and... Um, and people walking on it and digging around on it and things like that. But these testable claims of eyewitnesses, of those that supported Jesus and, and those that did not, these 
convince, I think, even the most hardened skeptics like Thomas. Look at Thomas's response. He said, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Because of the evidence, Thomas came to believe that Jesus not only rose from the dead, but Jesus is God in the flesh standing in front of him. And Jesus said to him, Thomas, because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Thomas believed because he saw, touched the risen Lord. But there are millions, perhaps billions of people since then who have not seen the risen Lord, but they still believe. That's you and me. So what does Jesus say to us? You are blessed. You are blessed. So if you want Jesus' peace to replace your fear, that's the whole context of this passage here in John chapter 20, starting at about verse 19, is this fear that they were having to overcome that that would propel them to carry the message into the world. If you want Jesus' peace to replace your fear, believe that he is alive, whether you've seen him or not. This is the basis of our faith. Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15 that without this fundamental faith in the resurrection, our, our faith is in vain. That's the central tenet, if you want to boil it down to one thing, about Jesus, that he rose from the dead. Without that, we're kind of wasting our time. So says Paul. But the resurrection of Christ can give you hope as well. If you need to, examine the evidence. God's not afraid of that. Jesus was not frustrated with Thomas. He wasn't angry with him. He was a legitimate seeker, we would use the term today. He was a legitimate seeker. We call him Doubting Thomas as if to cast some kind of aspersion on him. I, th I think that's, that's, that's maybe unwarranted because we all need to look into the evidence and be fully convinced of what we see because when we do, it changes things. It changes us. Test the claim that he's risen and don't stop testing it until you are convinced. Keep digging, search, and you will find it. Now, what did that lead Thomas to then say? After he was convinced that Jesus was indeed alive, what did that lead him to do and to say? He said, you are the Lord, my, my Lord and my God. Believe that Jesus is alive, that's, if you will, a fact or something that we can believe in. But believing that Jesus is Lord is something that's very different, and it's very personal, and it's very um, freeing, if you will allow it to be. You see, amid all the turmoil that's around you, whatever's going on in your life with your family, and some of you have grave family issues going on right this minute, 
Divorces are among us right now, happening as we speak. Family members getting divorced as we speak. I know this. God knows it too. My heart breaks for you. But so does the Lord's. You see, when we trust that Jesus is king, he's the anointed one, the son of God, ruler of the universe, it changes things. It changes things in your life. John writes, and truly Jesus did many other signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not written in this book. But these seven are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. This is the message of the Gospel of John. There are 35 miracles of Jesus recorded in Scripture. And John selected seven of those to prove that Jesus is God, King of the universe. He didn't list them all out. There's some that we read about in Matthew, Luke, Mark, that we don't read about in John. But he, he selected those. The Holy Spirit inspired him to curate those miracles to prove that he is the Christ. He is the anointed one. You see, throughout the Old Testament, prophets anointed the kings of Israel. What does that mean? They, they poured oil on the head of the monarch at their coronation. It would run over their head and down their beards. So to believe that Jesus is the Christ means that you believe he is the king your king. That's, that's different. But Jesus is also the Son of God, which was a title for every king in Israel since King David. They, they, they carried that name. That's uh, Proverb, uh, uh, Psalm uh, chapter 2, verse number 7. So to believe that Jesus is the Son of God means that you believe He is the king of the universe, God himself, your king. Why, why am I leaning into this? Because if you want Jesus' peace to replace your fear, you've got to first believe that Jesus is alive, and you've got to believe that Jesus is Lord. If you don't, then you've not surrendered your life to the spirit of the Lord Jesus Christ. You've, you've kept it back yourself. So here's an example I found. I didn't write this, but I, but I came across this. When you took your child home from the hospital, or when your parents took you home, unless you're old like me, they probably threw me on the dash back in the day because there were no seat belts in the cars back in those days, much less car seats. Um, I was driving down the road the other day and saw a, um, a Pomeranian sitting on the dash. Brilliant. But when you came home from the hospital, likely you were put in this gigantic car seat. You were this, this big, and the car seat's this big, relative. In the back seat, faced, the, faced backwards. You know, you probably had pillows or blankets around you, you know, to keep you tucked in. 
and your, your father probably drove home at 30 miles an hour on the highway, the flashers going, right? And that's a scary day, the first day that your kid is, 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 is with you when you're taking them home. So what's the next most scary day in the car with your kid? Emily's going, yep, when Kate got her driver's license. And she's driving. Or Quinn or Kelsey, I understand. But yeah, I recall teaching Brianna to drive and, and we were coming into the driveway. She's doing it really carefully. And then I said, okay, just a little bit more. And she hits the gas pedal, runs right over my air compressor in the garage. You see, when they turn 16, you're handing over the keys. So they're moving from the passenger seat into the driver's seat. They're moving from being a ride-along to being in charge. Some of you, I see your blood pressure going up. You're remembering. You're flashing back to that. Your kid's sitting close to you, and you're going, yeah, I remember that day. Not all of them are really good drivers. Mary Clyde, always a good driver. Always a good driver. Some others, not so much. It's a big moment in your life when you hand someone else the keys. So up until now, you were in charge. You chose the destination. You chose the speed. You chose the lane. You chose when to speed up, when to slow down. When You chose all of those things, and now you're handing that over. And the trust level is just not there. If you're going to change seats, if you're going to drive, I have to trust you. It's all about control. Whoever is in, in America in the left seat, that's who's in control. <coughs> A lot of people find Jesus handy to have in the car as long as he's in the passenger seat. Just stay there in case I need directions or I get in trouble. I'll call on you and you can fix things. But by George, you're sitting in that seat. I'm driving. Isn't that what we do? Isn't that what we do? We're in control. Jesus, I have a health problem and I need some help. I want you in the car, but I'm not so sure I want you driving. Because then I'm not in charge anymore. If he's driving, I'm not in charge of my wallet anymore. I put him in control, it's no longer a matter of giving some money now and then when I'm feeling generous or when more of it's coming into my life than going, is going out. If it's his wallet, that's scary. If Jesus is driving, I'm not in charge of my ego anymore. I don't have the right to satisfy all of my self-centered ambitions. It's his agenda it's his life i'm not in charge of my mouth anymore i don't get to gossip i don't get to deceive i don't get to rage i don't get to intimidate i don't get to manipulate i don't get to exaggerate like i did you see my friends if you really want to live without fear, we've got to turn the keys over. 
We've got to acknowledge that he is alive, but he's Lord in our life. One leads to the other. We've got to surrender our life to him. And that may be scary because you may be taken to places that you would not go otherwise. But you know what? That's actually one of the definitions of of leadership at at any level, companies, military, family, whatever, is leaders will take you to places that you would not go on your own. You would not go by yourself. I believe Jesus will take you to places that you would not have gone alone. But in that, you will have life real life in his name and your fear turns into a peace that passes all understanding paul says you'll also realize that he's a better driver than you ever were john also wrote it's recorded in first john chapter four that perfect love casts out fear because fear the new king james says brings terror but perfect love, complete love, casts that out. Some of us have grave fears here today. And I'm not saying that those fears are not legitimate, that they're not real at all. The, the, look, the fear that the, the, the apostles had in that room behind that locked door was real. Absolutely. I'm not making fun of those guys at all. I would be in the same boat But Jesus comes into their life literally through a locked door and says, peace be with you. My peace I give to you. Do you need that peace? Do you need that surrender to Jesus? Because he then offers that peace to you for you to accept the gift that's been given Or you can keep doing what you've been doing and keep getting what you've been getting. Some call that the definition of insanity. Expecting a different outcome when you keep doing the same thing over and over and over. How's that working out for you? It may work at times. A combination of meditation, deep breathing, medication... Those things may work well in your life for a time, but they do not offer the peace that passes all understanding. They do not offer the peace that that Christ offers. If you need to have your faith built up to believe that he is alive, if you need to have your faith and your dedication improved in order to really accept the gift that he wants to give you of life and of peace. We can start that today. We can pray with you. We can pray for you. We can start working with you and praying with you and studying with you, digging into God's word to help you do these very things. Thomas needed to touch. What is it that you need? If we can help you at all, let us know as we sing. Thank you so much for listening. To this podcast. For further information about our church, please go to normanchurch.com, normanchurch.com, normanchurch.com.